The Anxious Bench by the Reverend John Williamson Nevin Chapter 7 System of the Catechism Its Theological Ground and Constitution Its General Methods and Forms of Action Historical Exemplification It seems to be due to the whole subject that the system of the catechism, as here opposed to the system of the bench, should be a little more fully described. This might well form the theme of a separate tract. As a closing chapter to the present publication, it can claim our attention only in a very general way. The anxious bench has stood before us as the representative and type of a certain religious system, having its own theory and its own practice, both replete with dangerous error. In the same way, we exhibit the catechism as the representative and type of another system, including in like manner both theory and practice of an opposite character. It is not meant, of course, that the whole system originated in the catechism, or that it must stand or fall in every instance with the use of the catechism, but simply that this belongs to it in principle and constitution and is well fitted at the same time to stand as a specimen of its general meaning and force. The theory of religion in which the system of the catechism stands is vastly more deep and comprehensive and of course vastly more earnest also, than that which lies at the foundation of the other system. This last we have seen to be characteristically Pelagian, with narrow views of the nature of sin and confused apprehensions of the difference between flesh and spirit, involving in the end the gross and radical error that conversion is to be considered, in one shape or another, the product of the sinner's own will, and not truly and strictly a new creation in Christ Jesus by the power of God. This is an old heresy, of which notice is taken by the Apostle Paul in the second chapter of his epistle to the church at Colossae, and which has been actively at work in the Christian world under various forms and disguises from that time to the present. It has often put on the fairest appearances, seeming even to go beyond the general life of the church in the measure of its zeal and spirituality. It can easily affect also, deceiving itself as much as others, to honor the grace of God and to derive all its life from a source beyond itself. But still the imagination remains that this life is something that stands in the individual separately taken, the property of a particular self, rather than a more general power in which every such particular self is required to lose itself, that old things may pass away and all things become new. The man gets religion and so stands over it and above it, in his own fancy, as the owner of property in any other case. From such monstrous perversion, the worst consequences may be expected to flow. The system may generate action, but it will be morbid action, one-sided, spasmodic, ever leaning towards fanaticism. In opposition to this, the true theory of religion carries us continually beyond the individual to the view of a far deeper and more general form of existence in which his particular life is represented to stand. Thus sin is not simply the offspring of a particular will putting itself forth in the form of actual transgressions, but a wrong habit of humanity itself, a general and universal force which includes and rules the entire existence of the individual man from the very start. The disease is organic, rooted in the race, and not to be overcome in any case by a force less deep and general than itself. As well might we look for the acorn to forsake in growing the type of its proper species and put forth the form of a mountain ash or stately elm. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. So deep and broad is the ruin from which man is to be delivered by the gospel. 
And here again, the same depth and breadth are presented to us also in the Christian salvation itself. Man is the subject of it, but not the author of it in any sense. His nature is restorable, but it can never restore itself. The restoration to be real must begin beyond the individual. In this case, as in the other, the general must go before the particular and support it as its proper ground. Thus humanity, fallen in Adam, is made to undergo a resurrection in Christ, and so restored, flows over organically, as in the other case, to all in whom its life appears. The sinner is saved then by an inward living union with Christ, as real as the bond by which he has been joined in the first instance to Adam. This union is reached and maintained through the medium of the church by the power of the Holy Ghost. It constitutes a new life, the ground of which is not in the particular subject of it at all, but in Christ, the organic root of the church. The particular subject lives, not properly speaking in the acts of his own will separately considered, but in the power of a vast generic life that lies wholly beyond his will and has now began to manifest itself through him as the law and type of his will itself as well as of his whole being. As born of the Spirit, in contradistinction from the flesh, he is himself spiritual and capable of true righteousness. Thus his salvation begins, and thus it is carried forward, till it becomes complete in the resurrection of the great day. From first to last, it is a power which he does not so much apprehend as he is apprehended by it, and comprehended in it, and carried along with it, as something infinitely more deep and vast than himself. Now as one or the other of the two opposite theories of religion, thus briefly described, may be found to reign, not in the written or oral creed of those who take an interest in the subject, but in the inmost core of their life, the result will appear, with characteristic difference, in the whole tenor and bearing of their religion itself practically considered. And this difference will be substantially that of the two systems now compared, the religion of the catechism and the religion of the bench. It might seem, indeed, at first view, that the theory which sets the particular before the general, in this case, would be found more favorable than its opposite to earnest and vigorous religious action in every direction. And so it is often taken to be, in fact. The other scheme, involving as it seems to do a helpless dependence of the individual upon a generality deeper and more comprehensive than himself, first as it regards sin, and then again as it regards righteousness, is held up to reproach, as a view that cuts the sinews of moral action, and may be expected, where it prevails, to lie like a paralyzing incubus on all the energies of the church. But this idea is contradicted by universal experience, as well as by the true philosophy of life. To be moved deeply and strongly in any case, man must be wrought upon by a force deeper and more comprehensive than his separate self. Great purposes and great efforts appear only when the sense of the particular and the last is constrained to become tributary to the tendencies and purposes of the first. There may be a great show of strength where the man acts simply from and for himself, noise, agitation, passion, reaching even to violence, but it will be only a display of imbecility when all is done. The will acting in this way is very weakness itself, and all the blustering and violence it may put on serves but to expose the deficiency of strength that prevails within. To acquire, in any case, true force, it must fall back on a power more general than itself. And so it is found that in the sphere of religion particularly, the Pelagian theory is always vastly more impotent for practical purposes 
than that to which it stands opposed. The action which it produces may be noisy, fitful, violent, but it can never carry with it the depth, the force, the fullness that are found to characterize the life of the soul when set in motion by the other view. Conviction of sin is never deep and thorough till it comes to a clear consciousness with the sinner that his sinful life is rooted in a sinful nature, older and broader than himself, which he has no power to renovate or control. Nor is the Christian salvation rightly understood till it is felt that it must be something more deep and comprehensive than the will of the individual subject himself in whom it is to appear. Such experience carrying the man beyond himself and merging the consciousness of the particular in the consciousness of the general may be much less ostentatious and much more quiet than the experience generated by the other view. But it will be so only because it is far less superficial and far more full of truth. Religion in this form becomes strictly a life, the life of God in the soul. So far as this life prevails, it is tranquil, profound, and free. It overcomes the world, not by might and by power, the unequal, restless, fitful, and spasmodic efforts of the flesh, but by the Spirit of the Lord. The believer can do all things, standing in Christ. And as this theory of religion is the ground of all deep experience in the case of the individual Christian, so it gives rise to the most vigorous and comprehensive action on the part of the church for carrying into effect the provisions of the gospel for the salvation of men. In proportion exactly as it is understood and felt, will such action display itself in all its proper forms, and under no other circumstances can any agency be employed for the same end that will be entitled at all to take its place. From first to last, the action now mentioned will go forward under a due practical recognition of the truth that both the ruin of man and his recovery rest in a ground which is beyond himself as an individual. If saved at all, he is to be saved by the force of a spiritual constitution established by God for the purpose, the provisions of which go far beyond the resources of his own will, and are expected to reach him not so much through the measure of his own particular life as by the medium of a more general life with which he is to be filled and animated from without. This spiritual constitution is brought to bear upon him in the church by means of institutions and agencies which God has appointed and clothed with power expressly for this end. Hence, where the system of the catechism prevails, great account is made of the church, and all reliance placed upon the means of grace comprehended in its constitution as all-sufficient under God for the accomplishment of its own purposes. The means are felt to be something more than mere devices of human ingenuity, and are honored and diligently used accordingly as the wisdom of God and the power of God unto salvation. Due regard is had to the idea of the church as something more than a bare abstraction, the conception of an aggregate of parts mechanically brought together. It is apprehended rather as an organic life, springing perpetually from the same ground and identical with itself at every point. In this view, the church is truly the mother of all her children. They do not impart life to her, but she imparts life to them. Here again the general is felt to go before the particular and to condition all its manifestations. The church is in no sense the product of individual Christianity, as though a number of persons should first receive the heavenly fire in separate streams, 
and then come into such a spiritual connection comprising the whole. But individual Christianity is the product, always and entirely, of the church as existing previously, and only revealing its life in this way. Christ lives in the church, and through the church in its particular members, just as Adam lives in the human race generically considered, and through the race in every individual man. This view of the relation of the church to the salvation of the individual exerts an important influence, in the case before us, on the whole system of action by which it is sought to reach this object. Where it prevails, a serious interest will be taken in the case of children as proper subjects for the Christian salvation from the earliest age. Infants born in the church are regarded and treated as members of it from the very beginning, and this privilege is felt to be something more than an empty shadow. The idea of infant conversion is held in practical honor, and it is counted not only possible, but altogether natural, that children growing up in the bosom of the church, under the faithful application of the means of grace, should be quickened into spiritual life in a comparatively quiet way, and spring up numerously, as willows by the watercourses, to adorn the Christian profession without being able at all to trace the process by which the glorious change has been effected. Where the church has lost all faith in this method of conversion, either not looking for it at all, or looking for it only in rare and extraordinary instances, it is an evidence that she is under the force of a wrong religious theory and practically subjected, at least in some measure, to the false system whose symbol is the bench. If conversion is not expected nor sought in this way among infants and children, it is not likely often to occur. All is made to hang methodistically on sudden and violent experiences belonging to the individual separately taken and holding little or no connection with his relations to the church previously. Then, as a matter of course, baptism becomes a barren sign, and the children of the church are left to grow up like the children of the world, under general most heartless, most disastrous neglect. The exemplifications of such a connection between wrong theory and wrong practice, in this case, are within the reach of the most common observation. Only where the system of the catechism is in honor and vigorous force do we ever find a properly earnest and comprehensive regard exhibited for the salvation of the young, a regard that operates not partially and occasionally only, but follows its subjects with all-compassing interests, like the air and light of heaven, from the first breath of infancy onwards, a regard that cannot be satisfied in their behalf with the spasmodic experience of the anxious bench, but travails in birth for them continually till Christ be formed in their hearts the hope of glory. Thus due regard is had to the family, the domestic constitution, as a vital and fundamental force in the general organization of the church, and all proper pains are taken to promote religion in families as the indispensable condition of its prosperity under all other forms. Parents are engaged to pray for their children and to watch over them with true spiritual solicitude, continually endeavoring to draw them to Christ. With such feelings, they will have, of course, a family altar and daily sacrifices of praise and prayer in the midst of their house. They will be careful, too, to instill into the minds of their children the great truths of religion in the house and by the way. Catechetical instruction, in particular, will be faithfully employed from the beginning, and to crown all, the power of a pious and holy example will be sought as necessary to impart life to all other forms of influence. All this belongs properly to the system of the catechism.
In close connection with this domestic training, the ministrations of the church come in, under a more public form, to carry forward the same work. The church feels herself bound to watch over the children born in her bosom and to follow them with counsel and instruction and prayer from one year always on to another. They are required to attend upon the services of the sanctuary. Especially, the process of catechetical instruction is employed with constancy and patience to cast, if possible, both the understanding and the heart into the mold of evangelical doctrine. The regular administration of the word and sacraments forms, of course, an essential part of the same system. The ordinances of the sanctuary, being of divine institution, are regarded as channels of a power higher than themselves, and are administered accordingly with such earnestness and diligence as bespeak a proper confidence in their virtue under this view. Then again, the system includes the wide range of the proper pastoral work as distinguished from that of the pulpit. The faithful minister is found preaching the gospel from house to house as well as in a more public way, visiting the families that are under his care expressly for this purpose, conversing with old and young on the great subject of personal religion, mingling with the poor in their humble dwellings as well as with those in better circumstances, ministering the instructions of religion or its consolations at the bedside of the sick or dying, and in one word laying himself out in continual labors of love towards all, as the servant of all for Jesus' sake. The holiness of his own life particularly becomes, in these circumstances, an agency powerful beyond all others to recommend and enforce the gospel he is called to preach. To all who know him, his very presence carries with it the weight of an impressive testimony in favor of the truth. The object in all these efforts is not simply to bring sinners in the first instance to repentance and faith, but to build them up through the knowledge of the truth in all righteousness unto everlasting life. The ministry, with all the resources of the sanctuary, is made to look to the perfecting of the saints and the edifying of the body of Christ as its main end. Individual Christians and each congregation of believers as a whole are to be established, strengthened, and carried forward with regular and symmetrical growth to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It is characteristic of the opposite system that it makes conversion in its own sense to be the all-in-all all of the gospel economy and the development of the Christian life subsequently a mere secondary interest, as though by bending all efforts immediately towards the accomplishment of the first object separately taken, the last might be safely left in a great measure to take care of itself. All this on the false principle again that the church is to be enlarged by additions mechanically brought into connection with it from without, rather than by the extension of its own organic life from within. But in the gospel, all is made to hang on the growth of the church itself in grace and living power. This is the great object to be reached after in the ministerial and pastoral work, and it is only as this is in some good measure secured that this work can be brought to bear with proper efficiency on the world beyond. Where the church is in a living and growing state, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, and according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of herself in love, she becomes by this very process of growth itself the fountain of spiritual life to the dead mass with which she is surrounded, taking up the element of humanity as 
flesh and by the assimilating force of her own vitality, changing it into humanity as spirit and life. In such circumstances, all the functions of the mystical body and that of the ministry of course among the rest will be carried forward through their proper organs with full power and effect. Where this order is not maintained, there may be exhibited often in the work of the gospel vast excitement and great show of strength and what for the moment shall seem to be immense effect. But it will be a manifestation of comparative weakness in fact by which only the surface of life's broad stream has been tossed into waves while its interior depths roll quietly forward as before. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. It is in the kingdom of grace, as in the kingdom of nature, the greatest, deepest, most comprehensive and lasting changes are effected constantly, not by special, sudden, vast explosions of power, but by processes that are gentle and silent and so minute and common as hardly to attract the notice of the world, which is so deeply affected by their action. God is not with so much effect in the whirlwind, earthquake, and tempest as in the still small voice of the falling dew or growing grass. And so in the church, the common and the constant are of vastly more account than the special and transient, the noiseless and the unseen of immensely greater force than that which cometh with observation and fills the world with the sound of its presence. Such, in a general view, is the action generated by the system of the catechism for the great purposes of the gospel as compared with that which flows legitimately from the system of the bench. This system, then, gives no encouragement to religious torpor or sloth. That some take shelter under its name, who are opposed to all that is serious or earnest in religion, while they affect to magnify the catechism and the common ministrations of the sanctuary, only shows that they have no communion, in fact, with the system in its true life. They resemble the Jews of old who trusted in the outward temple, while they showed themselves false to all that made the temple sacred. Dead churches and dead ministers that turn catechetical instruction into an empty form and make no account of inward living piety as a necessary qualification for membership in the Church of Jesus Christ, have no right most assuredly to identify themselves with the system of the catechism. And it is a gross wrong inflicted upon it by such as seek to bring it into discredit when such instances of orthodox formality and deadness are taken to be proper exemplifications of its character and power, as though it had a natural tendency to beget death in this way rather than life. It produces action and calls for strength to a far greater extent than the system of the bench. It is the greatest and most difficult work in the world to be a faithful minister of Jesus Christ in the spirit of this system which might well constrain even an apostle to exclaim, Who is sufficient for these things? God forbid that we should countenance for a moment the dreadful supposition that the work of the ministry calls for no special zeal, no missionary devotion, no full and entire consecration to Christ, no earnest concern for the salvation of immortal souls, or that a church may be considered in a right state where the voice of prayer is silent, the tear of penitence unknown, the hand of benevolence palsied, the language of Canaan despised, and the power of godliness treated as an idle dream. A church without life is an abomination in the sight of God. The ministry is horribly profaned when it is made a retreat for worldlings, drones, hirelings that care not for the flock but only for the fleece. Instant, in season, and out of season, 
is its proper watchword, the motto that floats on its heaven-descended banner. And it is under the system of the Catechism precisely that the power of this is fully understood and felt, and may be expected to come, in a practical way, broadly into view. In this system, room is found naturally and easily, of course, for all evangelical interests. It is a prodigious abuse of terms when some of the most vital and prominent of these are crowded out of their proper place and made to stand in another connection entirely. When social prayer meetings, for instance, and the various missionary and benevolent operations of the church are divorced in imagination from the regular life of Christianity and ranked in the same bad category with such tricks of human device as the anxious bench. Family prayer and social prayer belong as much as private prayer itself to the very nature of the church. The spirit of missions is identical with the spirit of Christianity. For a church or a minister to oppose prayer meetings or efforts to send the gospel to the heathen or efforts to raise up faithful ministers or to circulate Bibles and tracts for the promotion of genuine godliness at home is to oppose Christ. We hear, it is true, of churches and ministers that look upon all these things as fanaticism while they pretend to honor the good old way of the catechism. But such ministers and churches, in the emphatic language of the apostle, lie and do not the truth. They honor neither the catechism, nor the Bible, nor Christ. And the evidence of this appears invariably in the fact that the same ministers and churches hate all serious, earnest godliness, are perfectly worldly in their temper, make no account of the new birth, and show no sense of religion whatever, any farther than it may be supposed to consist in a decent morality and an outward use, to some extent, of its standing ordinances. It is a most unfair view, again, of the system of the catechism to think of it or speak of it as unfriendly to all special and extraordinary forms of action in the work of the gospel. The system, it is true, makes more account of the regular, the ordinary, and the general than it does of the occasional and the special, more account of rills and the perpetually flowing breezes of heaven than of mountain torrents, waterspouts, and storms. But it does not by any means preclude the presence of what is out of the usual way or refuse to suit itself to its requirements when it comes. The extraordinary in this case, however, is found to stand in the ordinary and grows forth from it without violence so as to bear the same character of natural and free power. It is not the water spout, but the fruitful, plentiful shower causing the fields to sing and the trees of the wood to clap their hands for joy. Such is the true conception of a revival. For such special showers of grace, it is the privilege of the church to hope and her duty to pray at all times. To call in question either the reality or the desirableness of them is a monstrous skepticism that may be said to border on the sin of open infidelity itself. They are the natural product of the proper life of the church. Wherever the system of the catechism is rightly understood and faithfully applied, it may be expected to generate revivals in this form, though in proportion to the measure of this faithful use, it may be said, the ordinary and the extraordinary as here distinguished will be found continually coming closer and closer together. Till in the end, they may appear almost identical, and the church shall seem to bask, as on the delectable mountains, in the perpetual sunlight of heaven itself. This may be denominated of a truth her best state, and we may add her most true, proper, and natural state. 
Churches that hate revivals may be said emphatically to love death. Every faithful pastor will be concerned to see his ministrations crowned with such special effusions of God's Spirit, and will stand prepared at the same time to hail with joy the first indications of their approach, and to put forth special efforts for the purpose of turning them to the largest account. These efforts, however, will be in the general form of his ordinary ministrations and services. If need be, however, they may be allowed to involve, to some extent, modes of action entirely new. It is not the mere circumstances of novelty, of course, that forms the true ground of objection to new measures, technically so-called, but the spirit, life, principle of a certain system rather, as old as Christianity itself, which the measures thus designated are found to embody and represent. A revival in the very nature of the case, so far as it may be a special visitation, transcending the ordinary life of a particular church, must call forth special action on the part of both minister and people. Meetings for prayer will naturally be multiplied. The call for preaching will be increased. Protracted meetings, as they are styled, may be required. Visiting from house to house and direct personal conversation with sinners on the state of their souls are carried forward, of course, with more diligence and vigor than before. Sermons and exhortations may be expected to become more earnest and pungent. A greater amount of feeling will prevail in the meetings. It will become necessary to have special conferences with the awakened. All this is a simple extension of the processes by which the ordinary life of the church is to be maintained, made necessary by the special outpouring of God's Spirit, and fairly comprehended from first to last in the system of the catechism as distinguished from the system of the bench. It is true indeed that the spirit of the bench may take possession of these measures and infuse into them its own life and complexion. It is not by merely mechanical and formal distinctions that we can hold ourselves always to the territory of one of these systems as distinguished from the other. What we are most concerned to understand is the spirit or soul by which each is animated. Thus it often happens that all the processes by which a revival is carried forward show themselves to be in fact pervaded with the false spirit of the bench at every point. But so far as that is the case, the revival itself ceases to be such in the true sense of the term. It becomes a mere mock revival, a bastard imitation of the truth, the mushroom product of feeling and fancy, wrought into a compost of fanaticism, from which it shoots forth, as it were, in the course of a single night, without substance or strength. In such case, the various forms of action which have been mentioned may be so exhibited as to breathe throughout the spirit of the system represented by the bench, and there may be good reason for condemning the whole as quackery and wildfire. And no doubt it is owing to the frequent caricaturing to which revival measures have thus been subjected, more than to any other cause, that so strong a prejudice is found to prevail sometimes against everything of the sort. But still such measures as have been mentioned are not, in their own nature, of the same complexion with the anxious bench. They spring from the very conception of a revival, and no abuse to which they may happen to be subjected in the hands of revival manufacturers should be suffered to bring them into discredit under their legitimate form. They belong constitutionally to the system of the catechism. It was on this system emphatically the reformers of the 16th century relied in carrying forward the great work for which they were raised up by the Spirit of God. It might be denominated indeed with great propriety the system of the Reformation. Luther, 
Zwingli, Calvin, were all, in the fullest sense, men of the catechism. And it was in this character preeminently they showed themselves so mighty and so successful in laying the foundations and rearing the superstructure of that vast spiritual work which has since been associated with their names. They had ample opportunity, if they had seen proper to use it, for going to work by the other method. The age was ripe for agitation and commotion in the name of religion to any extent. Luther could have created a revival in this form that would have made all Europe rock with whirlwind excitement. But he left such work to the Anabaptists, or rather his giant strength was successfully opposed to it in their hands. The Anabaptists were the men of the bench in that day. Luther belonged wholly to another school. I cannot perhaps close the subject better than by exhibiting a most interesting and instructive exemplification of the true character and force of the system now explained and recommended as furnished from the history following the Reformation in England by the celebrated Richard Baxter and his parish of Kidderminster. Switzerland, Germany, Holland, and most of all, Scotland, present in their history innumerable attestations to the same point, but it is well to fix our attention for a moment on a single case, peculiarly striking in its character, and more than commonly prominent through the worldwide reputation of the pastor. Baxter, it is well known, lived in the most stormy period of English history, during which, for more than half a century, both church and state might be said to rock perpetually as with the earthquake throes of revolution. He was intimately connected at the same time with public affairs and public men and deeply concerned in the political changes which were going forward. He was moreover a scholar and a writer with such attachment to his books and such a zeal in the use of his pen as have characterized but few ministers in any age. Add to all this, he labored under such a complication of bodily infirmities and ailments that one can hardly help wondering how he was able to do anything at all. It is distressing only to think over the catalog of his disagreeable maladies as they are presented in his life. Kidderminster, when he began to preach there, was a most neglected, unpromising charge, like many others in England at that time. His predecessor had been a common tippler and drunkard, without any fitness whatever for his work. The congregation was large, but composed for the most part of ignorant, careless, rough-mannered people. At the end of two years, the excitement produced by the civil wars compelled him to withdraw. After the lapse of some time, however, he was permitted to resume his labors in the same place and continued in them about fourteen years till separated from his charge by the new order of things brought with the restoration of the second Charles. His ministry at the first was by no means generally palatable. It seemed to be altogether too serious and strict for the views that reigned commonly among the people, and called forth, in fact, no small amount of rough opposition. But he was not a man to be discouraged by difficulties of this sort. He went forward patiently and faithfully with his work, and in the end saw it crowned with complete success. The parish of Kidderminster would seem to have been one, precisely of that sort, which those who glorify new measures in our day are accustomed to consider specially in need of being wrought upon in this way. Were one of this school planted down in the midst of such a congregation, rude, ignorant, immoral, and having no sense whatever of the power of godliness as distinguished from its forms, his very first thought would be probably that nothing could be done to purpose till the whole community should be roused and stimulated into violent action 
in some sudden, wholesale way. So perhaps he would appoint a protracted meeting, call in the aid of some professional revivalist, bear down with the whole apparatus of his favorite system upon the people, drive excitement to the uttermost, and then, when the field should seem to be carried in this style, it might be trumpeted with due flourish in some religious paper that the parish had become morally regenerated. A most summary and convenient method of turning a dry, barren Kidderminster into a fruitful field and causing it to put forth blossoms as the rose. But after all, it did not suit the views of Richard Baxter. Mere excitement was of little account in his eyes, except as it might spring from the truth, and he had no conception or expectation of any general good to be accomplished by his ministry, except in the way of a patient, constant attendance upon the work itself, in its most minute details, kept up with prayer and faith from one end of the year to the other. Besides his Sabbath work and occasional sermons at other times, he preached once every Thursday. On Thursday evening, he held a religious conference at his own house, calling sometimes on one and sometimes on another to lead in prayer. The young people held besides a weekly prayer meeting. On Saturday evenings, the people were encouraged to meet together at some of their houses, to repeat the sermon of the preceding Sabbath, and to prepare themselves by prayer for the following day. Two days every week, he tells us, my assistant and myself took fourteen families between us for private catechizing and conference. He going through the parish and the town coming to me. I first heard them recite the words of the catechism and then examined them about the sense. And lastly, urged them with all possible engaging reason and vehemency to answerable affection and practice. I spent about an hour with each family and admitted no others to be present, lest bashfulness should make it burdensome or any should talk of the weakness of others. All the afternoons on Mondays and Tuesdays I spent in this way. Such was the general method of Baxter's ministry. It was constant, regular, earnest, not marked with noise and parade, but like the common processes of nature, silent rather, deep, and full of invisible power. He was a man of prayer, and his whole soul was in his work. Thus, his ministrations were clothed with uncommon interest and force. Prejudice and opposition gradually gave way. The pastor became the center of all hearts. In the end, the change was complete. We hear of no sudden general excitement, no pains taken to secure anything of that sort, no revival in the ordinary acceptation of the term, as denoting an occasional and transient awakening in the history of a church. But the life of religion in the place was constantly progressive, and the power of a quiet revival might be said to reign at Kidderminster all the time. The result was wonderful. The congregation, he says, was usually full, so that we were fain to build about five galleries after my coming thither, the church itself being very capacious and the most commodious and convenient that ever I was in. Our private meetings also were full. On the Lord's days, there was no disorder to be seen in the streets, but you might hear a hundred families singing psalms and repeating sermons as you passed through them. In a word, when I came thither first, there was about one family in a street that worshipped God and called on His name. And when I came away, there were some streets where there was not one poor family in the side that did not so. And that did not, by professing serious godliness, give us hopes of their sincerity. And in those families which were the worst, being inns and alehouses, usually some persons in each house did seem to be religious.
The church numbered 600 communicants, of whom there were not 12, says Baxter, that I had not good hopes of as to their sincerity. Most happy would it be for our reformed German church if all her pastors could be engaged to lay to heart the weight of this great example. Let no one think within himself that his circumstances make it impossible for him to work and prevail in the same style. It would be hard to find among all our charges a field so rough and unpromising as was the parish of Kidderminster when first subjected to the labors of Baxter. And it is only the zeal and faithfulness of Baxter that are needed to transform the worst among them in the course of a few years into the image, at least in part, of what Kidderminster was when his ministry in the place was brought to a close. He has himself drawn a most stirring picture of what the pastor should be in his small work entitled Gildas Salvianus, the Reformed Pastor, showing the nature of the pastoral work, especially in private instruction and catechizing. I consider it a privilege to close the present work with a pointed reference to this most excellent publication. If any wish to see the system of the catechism explained and enforced as with a pencil dipped in heavenly light, let them read Baxter's Gildas Salvianus. One sentence of his own with regard to it should never be forgotten. If God would but reform the ministry and set them on their duties zealously and faithfully, the people would certainly be reformed. All churches either rise or fall as the ministry doth rise or fall, not in riches and worldly grandeur, but in knowledge, zeal, and ability for the work. The Reformed Pastor, says the distinguished Dr. Doddridge, is a most extraordinary performance and should be read by every young minister before he takes a people under his stated care and, I think, the practical part of it reviewed every three or four years. For nothing would have a greater tendency to awaken the spirit of a minister to that zeal in his work, for want of which many good men are but shadows of what, by the blessing of God, they might be, if the maxims and measures laid down in this incomparable treatise were strenuously pursued.